You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin by calling in the spirits to be with us here today. So I call out first to our ancestors, to all of those who lived well and died well, to all of those who bring that which is good and true and beautiful in our family lines to us. And they bring those gifts to us as the living who are here as that link between those who have been and those who are coming. And I ask these ancestors to gather around us here today to help us to do what must be done in this moment, in this particular unique moment and all the possibility and potential in it. Help us to do what we can do to bring that forward for those who are listening. So I call out to those ancestors with great gratitude. I've just spent a week working deeply with them and I am um, renewed and still ever amazed in my ever-growing understanding as a contemporary person of the great wealth um, of love and connection and wisdom that our ancestral helping spirits can offer us if we simply can learn uh, how to relate with them. So I'm, I'm today a bit speechless and in awe and in great gratitude for the ancestors. So I ask them to be with us here today to hold this circle strong that we might do what we are called forth to do on this day. And I ask that we each reach down from our heart into our bellies, through our legs, and deep down into the earth to that ever most essential ancestor, the earth, the planet. And we give thanks to the earth for the wonder of her dreaming, her dreaming of life that brought life as we experience it here to this planet and all of its diversity and all of its beauty, its many, many wise and amazing ecosystems and all the great intricate um, connections of life. And I just give thanks to the earth for life this day for the miracle of it and i ask the earth to continue to give us the wisdom of manifestation that we might each understand deeply how to be here in form in a good way for all living things and as we draw the energy of the earth up into these proceedings into our day and into our bodies we call up the energy of belonging the energy of groundedness the energy of home and place and caring We draw up the energy of connection and interconnection and we ask the earth to help us to feel that true interconnectedness of all things, to feel somewhere in this day the oneness and our place within it. And so we call up the energy of the earth into our bodies and we give thanks for life and for this day. And as we draw the energy of the earth up from our bellies into our hearts and our hearts into our minds and send our energy all the way up into the sky, all the way to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you call that power, I ask each one of you listening to call it down and to draw this energy down into yourself, into your day and into these proceedings. And as we draw down the energy of the sky, we bring in the energy of protection, the energy of devotion, the energy of blessing. And may you draw this energy into yourself so powerfully today that in your interactions with others, you bring that energy to them and bless them. We call in the energy of benevolence 
and excellence and precision and all that it takes to be inspired and live truly in the world. And we draw this energy down into our heads and our hearts and into our bodies. And we let ourselves be this place of the great dance between the energy of the earth and the sky, the legendary lovers, yin and yang, dancing within us in wholeness and let ourselves be filled with that big love. And with that energy inspiring us from within, let us call out the spirit of the heart. And we ask the heart to be truly present with us here today. We ask the heart to open up into that amazing crucible of transformation. And we ask the heart to be that place that we can draw the fiery passions of the belly up and the crystal clarity of the mind down and let these energies dance together in a way that gives birth to a third energy, one that has never been seen before. And that is the energy of our soul's true purpose. And may we find in our heart the courage to live that purpose in the world and to bring our gifts out, even in this day. So with these spirit energies called in and gathered round us, I give thanks. May what needs to be said be said, and what needs to be heard be heard. And may these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. I'd also like to give thanks to the people that keep the show alive and on the air Um, I was speaking with a woman who is in a very challenging place in her life, and she asked me to thank you all, those of you who are able to offer financially, for keeping the show alive for her because she's not able, and that the shows help her greatly, and the fact that they are there for her free is changing her life. And so she wanted me to extend her thanks to all of you who are able to keep the show alive and well and available to all who can connect to them um, through the internet. And so thank you all, Deborah, Langston, Sarah, JP, Anne, and all of the listeners who have donated in this past um, week for the show. If this show is meaningful for you in any way, even in ways that agitate and annoy, that means you've been moved in your heart. And if you are moved by the show in your heart in any way, I ask you to allow that motivation to move you into action, which is the essence of shamanism, is to be, let your heart motivate your actions. And if so, I ask you to do something to help the show to grow stronger and to remain alive. And if you can donate financially, please go to whyshamanismnow.com and click the support button and donate any amount, large or small. We appreciate every bit of it, and all of it goes directly to keeping the show on the air. And for those of you that can support the show in other ways, please do so, that interconnectivity of our life in cyberspace. Um, But also bring them into your shamanic life. Talk about them with your friends. Bring it to a journey circle. And and send me questions and ideas for shows and keep this a living, breathing part of your ever-growing shamanic life here in contemporary times. So thank you all. And um, today's show is uh, sponsored by the Society of Shamanic Practitioners, and so I give thanks to them for their um, unflagging support. And um, that also means this show can be found in their archives as well, and they are at shamansociety.org, and they are currently taking registrations for their summer regional um, conferences. So you can go to their website, shamansociety.org, and see what they are planning uh, for this year. So thanks to everyone, and... um, Without further ado, I'd like to thank our guest here today, this morning, McCall. Thank you for being with us here today. Thank you, Christina. And uh, I'm delighted to be here and finally to uh, meet you in some form here in cyberspace. It's such a funny thing, isn't it, cyberspace? But good. So everyone, for those of you that may not know... um, C. McCall Smith, otherwise known just as 
McCall, as we will refer to him today, has been doing bridge work in the field of Jungian psychology and shamanism for more than 30 years. And his best-known book has become a classic. It's called Jung and Shamanism in Dialogue, Retrieving Soul, Retrieving the Sacred. Um, he is currently the director of Crow's Nest Centers for Shamanic Studies International. And um, these centers all have communities which are living, growing, and breathing in Paris um, and the south of France, in Brussels, Belgium, in Cape Town, South, south Africa, and in Michigan in the USA. And the website, for those of you that want to locate um, all of this, the communities, the work, the classes, um, I keep getting lost in the websites, frankly. There's so much I click around and before I know it, six hours have gone by. <laughs> They're wonderful. <laughs> anyway, the website is crowsed, Crow's Nest shamanism c-r-o-w-s-n-e-s-t shamanism.com um so we are live also so if you would like to send in a question i would be happy to read it on the air that's christina at lastmaskcenter.org um you can also call in at 512-772-1938 or skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site and that is of course for those of you who have a question about the show (laughs) Not just random questions or because you want to talk to me. Um, So, anyway, (laughs) Um, so McCall, can you, um, especially for those people that may not have known until this very moment that you have such a wonderful offering here for shamanism in our contemporary times, what was it? What are the pivotal moments as you look back that really brought you to be the man that you are now? Um, And I ask this question always because. I'm trying to help contemporary people understand how we get here from our contemporary lives. Uh, you know, from this, uh, from the point of view of this lifetime, uh, I think for me it started around 19 in, a, in terms of these pivotal moments that you mentioned. Uh, because I used to like to climb out on my rooftop and watch the sun go down. And uh, the home we had was on the edge of a, a woodland. And uh, I just like the effect of the sun going down over the treetops. And I would do this in the winter because the, the tree branches would be silhouetted. And uh, I just liked the beauty of that against the uh, magenta skies. And uh, for some reason, I was uh, propelled to bring trees inside my house. And so uh, I I brought, they were dead branches, but I brought them in and it was the late 60s, and I painted them glow paints and put a black light in my bedroom, and I created a forest in my <laughs> bedroom. And uh, I just loved to be in there and to dream, and uh, it was like I was looking to the greater cosmos and an enchanted forest. And one night, I'm up on the roof watching the sun go down, and I see my whole life open out in a vision. Uh, I don't know what else to call it, in my imagination, in my fantasy. I am myself as an older man with gray hair, working in Africa as a healer, and all kinds of people are are gathered around me. And from that, I thought, oh, I'm going to be a healer. And uh, I thought maybe um, a medical missionary or something. At, at that stage of my development, I had no framework for what was happening. But uh, fast forward 42 years, uh, last February, after years of traveling around the globe teaching, uh, I, I was coming into South Africa to, uh, to be the, the kingpin in a uh, shamanic festival there. 
that I had helped design uh, with a friend of mine, Lynn Delamont. But I had never been to Africa, let alone South Africa. And we're driving in towards the, the bush country. And uh, suddenly I have a deja vu. I recognize the trees from my vision 42 years earlier, the exact trees. And uh, as I came into the camp area where we were to have the festival and saw the, the really are uh, kind of a Muslim Arab type of, of tent that they put up to keep the heat off in the savannah. And uh, I thought, my God, my vision of 42 years ago is literally coming true. And then uh, about 100 people gathered and uh, I taught them some things uh, with others uh, about shamanic ceremony, shamanic healing, and provided a number of very powerful ceremonies there for people to participate in, in which a lot of healing took place. And so in the, in the context of the week that I was there, I saw that I was literally living out uh, in 3D reality my vision from when I was 19 years old, and I'm 60. So that's that says something uh, about how it begins, and uh, I don't want to say how it ends, but uh, something about being on a certain path, a certain beam in life. It's also a beautiful reminder to people about timing and time. I, 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 I often watch people so frustrated they're missing the signs from spirit because it hadn't happened in like two years. <laughs> You know, and here you're you're talking about the beauty of this coming together after decades. It's beautiful. Well, in the the next uh, uh, awakening, you might say, or, or the calling, came around age 33, and between 19 and 33, uh, I spent a lot of time in the university and uh, accumulating degrees, and. Uh, and then I took a break around age 33, and uh, uh, I was married, and uh, I like to take walks with my wife at night uh, outside. And I, I would always see in the shadows of the streetlights uh, winged feathers, large winged patterns in the shadows. I didn't see just leaf shadows. I saw wings everywhere. And one night we were walking and talking, and I asked her what she thought those wings met and she said whatever are you talking about <laughs> you don't see wings all around you <laughs> said, no <laughs> i'll tell you what i do see but it's not that and uh, that was my first realization that, that maybe i was experiencing something that other people mm-hmm. may not experience you know? mm-hmm. or if they do it's dismissed or something and uh with that realization though uh, I, I really realized I was somehow in an altered state taking those walks. And so I experimented with it by sitting on my porch and just staring at the trees. And then I began to see uh, living beings in the trees. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, one tree just completely shape-shifted into a magnificent uh, Quetzalcoatl-like serpent. Mm-hmm. And after it did that, I could see it every night. I could just go sit on my porch and watch this magnificent serpent in the tree. Well, the visionary activity heated up over the next year, and finally I'm driving my car to my office, and uh, I'm having a big visionary experience in my car, and the earth opens up, and my 
car plunges in, going down into the, the underworld. Uh, that's what I would call it now. And uh, it was ultimately fascinating. But I was also where I was driving my car. And, <laughs> we need to remind people not to try this part at home. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I mustered my willpower to pull myself out. And uh, later that evening when I got home, I said to my wife, um, what happened? And she said, you know, if you tell this to the wrong person, you know, they're going to put on drugs and stuff like that. She goes, those Jungian analysts know something about this stuff. <laughs> Why don't you go see one of those? So I did. And I worked with a couple of great analysts. One is old lady Helen Luke who worked with the young. And, uh, and she said, oh, my, well, uh, shamans and mystics have been having these experiences for thousands of years. You know, it's no big deal. You know, <laughs> you can't be having them while you're driving your car. Right. Other than that, yeah. And eventually, um, she sent me off to a, a Jungian-run vision quest on Tomogamy, uh, Lake Tomogamy up in Canada, northern Ontario. And I went up there for two weeks, and uh, there was a community, but fasted, uh, we prepared, and then um, several days and nights. It wasn't the traditional four days and nights, but the whole ordeal was a two-week thing, and uh, my visions proliferated there. And uh, the Jungian analysts that were there were telling me that, uh, well, of course, you need to ground this stuff and uh, don't go back to academia. But the spirits were telling me, go back to academia. <laughs> okay. And in fact, they were very specific about it, University of Chicago. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I omitted the fact that I had contacted Mircea Iliadi, who actually became uh, a mentor in these early days. And uh, had invited me to come study there and share what he he knew to set what I was doing on some solid ground. Mm -hmm. As it turned out, he died before I got there. But mm -hmm. on this vision quest, uh, the spirits were very clear, don't listen to the analysts. <laughs> <laughs> Your destiny lies through University of Chicago. So I went to school there. I, you know, I, I took a couple doctorates uh, in cooperation with the uh, Chicago Theological Seminary. And uh, the C.G. Young Institute, which I also got a certificate from. And during that time, I worked with this medical anthropologist, uh, Sudhir Kakar, who wrote a book, Shamans, Mystic, and Doctors. He's famous for that. And uh, we studied healing systems across cultures. And he would bring in these videos from his fieldwork in Southeast Asia. And we would find translators and uh, interpret these things. But what I noticed was the uh, enormous similarities of patterns of healers in Southeast Asia. Uh, from When I say Southeast Asia, I mean from India, the subcontinent, uh, through Indonesia and into Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, and China. And uh, we saw the same structural patterns over and over again. You know, the cultural clothing was different, but the procedures were the same. And then I told Dr. Kakar that, you know, I had some similar experiences and I do similar work. And he was very interested. And the next thing I know, he put me up in this class uh, for um, me to share my experience and then to have students question me. And it turned into a whole course in itself. And the next year, he had me come and I was the course for this class. And the class was made up mostly a faculty member from uh, the uh, departments of anthropology, uh, divinity, um, psychology, uh, sociology. 
all who were interested in healing systems across cultures and new paradigms for healthcare coming out of this study for our culture. And as it turns out from that class, there were all these uh, students that came out of the woodwork and wanted to talk to me about their experience. And we formed a, a little organization that used to meet every Wednesday in one of the University of Chicago cafes and talk about our experiences and how we could build bridges to the modern uh, paradigm, the conventional paradigm, and do the work that we were called to do. And then uh, Robert Moore, uh, Jungian analyst, but also a professor there who, who specialized in ritual process and leadership, said to me, you know, the series of books I have on Jung and contemporary spirituality, why don't you do the volume on Jung and shamanism? says, I can't think of anybody that can do it better than you. Why don't you do it? So I did. I, I first wrote my psychotherapy in a sacred book, and then I, I turned to that and uh, wrote it in eight straight weeks, uh, about 15 hours a day. Just, uh, and I realized as I was doing it, I was building a conceptual foundation for my life work as a healer, mm -hmm. creating a bridge of concepts between the shamanic world and idiom and uh, the Jungian psychological world and idiom, so that it would not only benefit myself and my clients because I could translate back and forth, but it could benefit other practitioners. And it's turned out that's that's been the case. So t let's talk a little bit about, um, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about this idea of the, um, not just the idea, but the common ground of sacrality, this whole, this whole thread throughout the book about the sacred. Um, just sh share with us a little bit about why is that, that so important and how does it get missing and how do we bring it back, I guess. Not that it ever really goes away, but still. Yes, the, the subtitle is Retrieving the Soul, Retrieving the Sacred. Uh, yeah. I felt it wasn't enough to be talking about recovering soul, that the profoundest acts of healing are those which reunite you with the ground of your being with the source level, <laughs> with what you ultimately are. And uh, I noticed that in, in, in the area that I was initially trained in psychotherapy, you, it was taboo to talk about religion or spiritual experience with your clients. It was believed that this kind of reinforced neurotic guilt and was unhelpful. And in any way, it was superstitious, you know. So I was writing in a time and working against that mindset, particularly in the professions and in academia. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Well, I... Oh, yes, let me finish. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. The thing I was addressing there with the sacred was that we need psychological models that are built around the sacred. Uh, in, in shamanism, if you consider that as a, uh, an integral healing system, is built around the sacred. Native American, North American might say the Great Spirit is central to all the ceremonies. You know, and is reflected in myriads of ways, but you always acknowledge that. You know, Black Elk said the Great Spirit dwells in the heart of each creature, even the tiniest ant. And Jung had built his psychology around the sacred, what he called the self, this numinous uh, core and totality that we are. The big S self, right? Yes, the big S. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw that not only do we need that in our culture, in our healing systems, to acknowledge that, but we need permission 
to use ceremonies and symbol systems that relate it to our health and our sickness and help us with that. And so that's why the emphasis on the sacred in my book, psychotherapy mm-hmm. and the sacred, recovering soul and the sacred. <clears throat> they go hand yeah. in. Yeah, they really, they really do because in, 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 I think it was a shock to me and I, I haven't actually spent enough time thinking about why, but you know, to work with people over a period of time, which is lovely, and to have this feeling that, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, there aren't any more parts to get right now. <laughs> you know, it's like, your soul's doing fine. You're not. <laughs> like, like, you know, like the, the, the person, it's like they haven't realized that they need to tap into that sacred self and let it begin to chart the course. Yes. And that they're, they're not fundamentally broken, that, that that sacred is just still sitting there waiting for them to come in and have a cup of tea and, you know, figure out what to do next, you know. Whole life, a whole life context uh, based in the sacred is important. What I noticed when I worked with Dr. Kukar was that in all these different cultures, the uh, sacred system of the culture, its mythology, its rites, its symbol systems, its ceremonies, all that was used as part of the healing process. Uh, so uh, the, the acts of soul recovery and extraction were not s- separated from all that spiritual framework. They yeah. were a part of it and the ultimate expression of it. Yeah. Yeah, and there was a sense of um, uh, well, I feel like with contemporary people, is there's so many things about contemporary life that that either disconnect us from the sacred, or as you said earlier, made us think any of those impulses are superstitious or something somehow not appropriate. I don't know. Um, that we we lose the fact that there's a bigger plan and we're here to serve the bigger plan and the big and that that aspect of ourself has a connection to that bigger plan and that if we're always living in our small um self even if we get out of being reactive and this and that and the other thing we still don't know what to do next (laughs) even if we become essentially very healthy mentally and spiritually somehow we still don't have the plan until we're connecting into that um, larger awareness, larger sense of who we are. And for me, I guess that seemed that those things would always go hand in hand. But now after practicing for a couple of decades with contemporary people, I realize they don't always right. that. And, and that um, is kind of amazing to me. Does, I don't yeah. know. I don't I'm know with, if you no, noticed that as well, but um, yeah, I'm with you a hundred percent at uh, the crow's nest centers. Uh, we teach the basics of a heart path and uh, how that's uh, really a, a way of following the divine spirit in your life, through your life, through your body, and uh, how to really cultivate that, protect it, develop it. And that becomes the basis for all of the, the courses on healing methods that we teach. If you don't have that foundation, um, it's like practicing Buddhist meditation, but you don't have the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and so on. You don't have mm-hmm. the system to ground you. That's what supports the practices, yeah. is the spiritual path. So would you like to talk a little bit and, and talk to people about the your system of the archetypal heart and and sort of what it is there at the center of, of your centers, <laughs> your teaching? Sure. 
Um, <clears throat> now, the way I'm going to explain this is largely in terms of the indigenous American heart system. There's a lot of different heart systems out there. Chinese Taoist heart system, for example, and the Christian mystics have their own, the Sufis have their own, and there's a lot of overlap. But um, the thing that's important, uh, the important gift or genius of the heart psychologies of the Americas, North, Central, and South, is that the heart is always attuned, attuned to Mother Earth and the cosmos. So it is impossible to follow your heart and not live in an honoring way with the earth and the life around you. And this is an ecological point. And you don't have that explicitly in heart psychologies coming out of other cultural systems. So it's the gift of the Americas. And, and so th that's the one I want to unpack a little bit. So what is the heart? Um, we can say it's the, the core, the center of the soul, or the, the uh, person inside. And it's not to be confused with the cardiac pumper. They're closely related. Okay? But, but uh, you can uh, transplant a heart, okay? And you'll have cellular memories. You'll take on some of the personality characteristics, okay, of the person you receive the transplant from. But that is not your spiritual center. That thing will rot and decay and go back to Mother Earth and uh, become material for new life. But that's not the heart I'm speaking of. The heart I'm speaking of is your ontological core. And truly being consciousness bliss, the divine spirit, the great spirit, whatever you want to call it, it's alive there. So you might call that the dimension of spirit or your essence, but it's central to your life. It's the axis mundi of your being. So how do you find that? You find it by dropping down below your mind, down below the thinker, into the middle of your body. Uh, roughly the cardiac region, but also the diaphragm and uh, the viscera. All that is part of the instinctual intelligence and wisdom of the heart, which is already attuned to Mother Earth. And you listen there. And I call just clearing a space for that and listening is an act of power. Because with that one act, you start to interrupt the mental domination of your life and the social domination. And you begin to listen to a source of guidance and intelligence that does not come from the exterior world. So I call that the first act of power. The second act of power is that you consider what is said there. What is said comes up as a feeling, an intuition, an image, a vision, whatever it is, play with it in your imagination. That's what I call honoring. In Chinese Taoism, which is also very shamanic, they, they call that the yin element. You, Play with the possibilities in your imagination to see what form uh, is most appealing to you. And uh, notice if you're really drawn to it and you want to manifest it. And if so, you can make that decision. And then the third act of power is once you commit to it, uh, then you, you plan to manifest it. You identify the obstacles and the plan for removing them. You gather your resources, whatever you need, and you follow through. And the fourth act of power is to protect at each step. Protect from who? To protect from um, the criticism of others or the opinions of others. Uh, but to protect from your own criticism, your own internal judgment uh, also. Uh, the criticism says, well, you can't do that, or who do you think you are that you can do this thing, or... 
um, you need to stay at home and be a mother or whatever. These kind of messages come. And if you allow them in, they will smash this new inspiration like a ton of cement on a new blade of grass, just flatten it. So protection is very important. And as I teach and work with women the world over, this uh, fourth act of power I find is the most important. Uh, none of the rest of it will come to life without that. And uh, the messages women get in different cultures, they vary in terms of intensity and uh, how much the, the culture uh, tends to criticize uh, a woman who wants to live from her own heart. They can vary widely. But uh, I find if a woman knows she has a right to protect what's coming from within, wow, she can really grow and flourish and come to, into her being with new sureness. She becomes uh, creative as she steps into her power. She can live from the heart. So that really is the essence of the indigenous heart psychology of the Americas. I've formulated it in modern Western language, but... Uh, and it has uh, high resonance with Jung's psychology via individuation. So can you share a story or something that just illuminates, in a sense, um, what you've just been talking about, about how that heart um, operates like in you in, when you're working, when you're working either as a practitioner or, or a teacher, just yes. to give people a sense of it in action? Yes, um, when I'm working with uh, clients or students, I teach them to uh, uh, a focusing technique, actually, to, to quiet the mind, go inside the middle of their body, and bring to mind somebody they don't like to be with, and just notice what they feel there. There's no words for it. It's just a physical feeling. And when they've done that, I have them I bring, let go and bring to mind someone uh, they, they don't feel comfortable being around, and then notice what they feel there. There's a, a kind of little compass in there that points towards uh, something feeling right fundamentally, like organismic rightness or organismic wrongness. And that's the way the heart speaks to you is through that visceral energetic intelligence. Yeah. And, and so that's the first thing I teach people is how to find that so they can start listening. And if they start listening and using those four acts of power, synchronicities are going to begin happening that actually support that. Um, well, and I'm not sure that you know people ever believe me when I say this, but but that's exactly what I understood um, these indigenous shamans saying. Now, granted, it's being translated through three languages, but that's what I saw them doing and experienced them saying, uh, particularly um, sucking doctors and people that are really extracting these energies, is that they seem to be using their heart sense to sense is this energy problematic and needs to be removed or is this energy actually healthful for this person is it a power animal for example or helping spirit and needs to stay present in the person and so it wasn't so much about you know learning these protocols as it was about feeling in in that um, not not emotional sense but that heart rightness of things absolutely uh i got this heart psychology uh formulated through my own apprenticeships, my own initiations, uh, and uh, carefully listening to what was said, uh, often to what was not said, uh, and asking questions later, and putting this together slowly. This, this took me a period of 20 years, really, to mm -hmm. be able to articulate it as clearly as I can. But there was a moment with my teacher, Don Alberto Taxo, 
uh, Ecuadorian uh, Yachek, and uh, uh, because he's Quichua and he speaks Spanish, but uh, you know some things don't translate, and then uh, translating into English, it's very confusing. Uh, but he, he would talk about feeling a lot, sentir, sentir in Spanish. And uh, I wanted to know, did he mean cinco sentido, the, the five senses, or did he mean uh, something intuitive or felt sensi? And uh, he said, uh, it's an act of perception. Mm-hmm. And I said, what are you perceiving with? And uh, he pointed to his heart and he said, mi corazón, my heart. And uh, I heard someone ask him, uh, uh, Don Alberto, if your son wants to become uh, a Yachek like you, uh, will you encourage him? And he said, only my son can know what he is to do. He will have to use his heart and feel to see what he's supposed to do. So there you have it in a nutshell, this indigenous heart theory. Yeah, Joe Campbell talked about, uh, you know, following bliss, and it is essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. He says something tells you you're on the beam, something tells you you're off the beam. And it's very important to get off the beam so you know what the beam is and where it is. Mm-hmm. And once you're off of it and you're clear on what that feels like, then you're going to recognize when you're back on the beam because you're going to feel coherent again. But he didn't give us uh, some bodily way of knowing how to find that beam. And so that's what I'm trying to articulate here is if you can go inside and just pay attention to the physical feeling in the middle of your body in response to anything, to anyone, to any image, any dream, any idea that you have, your heart has an opinion about that and will try to urge you one way or the other. And so if you learn to listen to that, you cultivate a daily practice of listening to that, you can create a most beautiful, fulfilling life. I live my life like that every day. From the moment I wake up, I ask myself, what kind of day do I want to have? And I let my heart dream and I let it come up and I get a sense. I play with it, my imagination, so I honor it. And when I have it clear in the form I want it, then I get up. I avoid the cell phones. I avoid the computer. And I go make that thing happen before I turn to the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just an example. And I teach this to people. Uh, you know, it could be a simple thing like just – planning the next two hours, or it could be a very complex thing like a big life project or an ecological project or a career that you want to build. But it's the same steps, the same acts of power that are involved in doing that. I was thinking about a lot of things when you were talking, so I got a little bit off track here. (laughs) It's very inspiring. Um, One one more comment about it. Uh, To give a simple example, let's say I want to build a patio in the backyard. That's the invitation that's arisen from my heart when I woke up. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a little patio out there, look at the forest, have a fire pit nearby. I actually created all that. But in that uh, initial stage, I'm just listening to the heart. What it thinks would delight it, you know, would be wonderful. And then uh, I begin to uh, think, okay, do I want a brick patio, a paver patio? Do I want a wood deck? What shape? So I play with that in my imagination some more until I have it like I want. Then I say, I'm going to do it. And I get up and I will sketch on paper, uh, draw out this patio. In fact, the arrangement of the whole backyard. And then uh, I'm moving into the manifesting phase. I call the lumber company and I get prices on lumber because I'm going to build a wood deck. You know? 
And uh, then I get the equipment and I line up the help and I, I manifest this thing, protecting it each step of the way. So there's your four acts in a simple yeah. project. Yeah. But you can build a whole life the same way. Well, it seems to me, and this, I, you know, you can correct me if I'm off on the wrong path here, but it just seems to me that one of the great values of psychology is in that protection place. It helps me understand my my mental self, my psychological self, um, in that small sense, but also in the archetypal sense, and helps me manage that so that I don't get in the way of my heart, and that I can support it through um, consistent choices, um, inspiration from archetypal energies, not getting caught up in all of the many ways my smaller self would tell me why I can't do what I'm doing and why it's stupid and why it shouldn't be lumber and why it should be, you know, and that there's, there's really great value because I find sometimes for people that, that don't have any idea what's going on in their head and how to manage it, it re- they, they can't succeed in those second steps, the actual visioning and, and, and um, protection. Because yes. it's, they're just too messy. Yes. I, I, you remind me of an important point I should make, and that is we don't want to put the mind down. Right. There are structures and patterns in the mind that create suffering and soul loss. Uh, this would be the, the judge, the victim, belief systems that aren't really helpful. But uh, the mind is the gift of Mother Earth. Its capacity mm-hmm. to symbolize, form words, language, is uh, it's our unique identity card you know the way uh, a certain wildcat has a beautiful coat of fur well language is ours and and we need the the, the mind the intellect to plan to participate in the culture mm-hmm. to learn the rules hopefully not just to consume the culture's rules but to also create them uh, and also to plan to analyze to uh, figure out costs of things so if you don't have a good head on their shoulders you cannot participate very well in your culture but the problem is we live in a culture where uh, the mind is overvalued and the heart is uh, suppressed. Mm-hmm. And dismissed now, as foolish. Now, in the indigenous cultures, you have it the other way around, okay? Uh, South American cultures, for example, there's a lot of talk about the Pachacuti prophecy, the eagle and the condor. And the eagle represents the high-flying intellect, and the condor represents uh, both the great spirit and the Pachamama. It's a, it's a spirit that's ecological cleans up the environment. But these two must fly together in the same skies. But the condor, symbolizing, let's say, the heart system, uh, must take the lead. And then the eagle comes in as its servant and helps it. Mm-hmm. So once the heart gets its vision and decides what it wants to do, then the intellect and all its powers become this wonderful uh, uh, ally in helping to manifest it. And you can't manifest it without it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, what, and both ways, part, partly just figuring out how to do it in the world that you've chosen to be in. But the other side is the, uh, the, um, the way in which people become their own worst enemy in, in their mind. Yes, right. And diminish the vision before they've even got it sketched. Um, and, then they, and then, as you said, becoming the thing they need to protect themselves from. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So in my work with uh, clients and apprentices, I – not only teach them how to listen to the heart, but also to clean up the mind. The four acts of power are really a complement to the four agreements of uh, mm-hmm. Miguel Ruiz. And uh, 
That's probably why I, I formulated them like that. In his book, he doesn't re- he implies the heart, but he doesn't uh, foreground it. He doesn't pull it up so we can see, okay, well, how do you live from the heart? How do you have silent knowledge and so on? He talks about how to clean the mind so you can live from the heart. So I thought, why not create the book that shows the other side of it, how to live from the heart, and put the two together in a complementary way, like yin and yang. So can you, um, in your in your vast experience in the territory, really, of understanding psychology and shamanism, which not everybody does understand both, um, although many people think they do. Um, can you help us understand? There's a, there are many people that come to me because they are frustrated with their therapy. And, and I would um, simplify their frustration by simply saying their heart feels left out. And they're starting to feel like the actual source of their healing is going to come from their, from their heart, not their head. So why does that happen? What, what, I think I, th- I don't think that that happens in all therapy, but I know that people get really frustrated with their therapy. Um, yeah. and, depends, and they, yeah, go ahead. It depends on the consciousness of the therapist and how developed that is. Uh, but psychotherapy, people spend a lot of time in school and a lot of money, and uh, they have a kind of a medical model idea in, in their head uh, that they're somehow the agent of healing and diagnosis. And, uh, and so they have all these diagnostic patterns in their head, and they have all these strategies of how to treat the symptoms and the patterns, but they're not given any kind of spiritual or ontological education. They don't see, okay, wait a minute, the person in there is not these patterns. It's not these diagnoses. These things change all the time, and we're about to have a new manual out, the DSM-5, which will give us some new language. You know, uh, But the person is the one in there that's battling with whatever it is those diagnostic labels refer to. And that person uh, is being flattened by those patterns. So the goal should not be to simply come up with new strategies to reduce their patterns, but to help that being in their grow come alive, stand on its own legs, uh, uh, have voice, uh, express its point of view with new sureness, uh, uh, become someone who steps into the power and can create things in their life. So that's a spiritual focus. That's a shamanic focus, really, or a humanistic focus. But conventional psychotherapy, let's say habitual psychotherapy, is going to look at the stuff that's in the way of that. And they forget that the, the real aim should be that being inside there that has that stuff. So if you have, if you work with a shamanic healer and they do a, a soul recovery or an extraction and you go into a therapist that, that is in a conventional model, then this could be a Jungian analyst for that matter too. Uh, anybody can be uh, stuck in a conventional level of consciousness. Uh, they're going to tend to flatten what just happened with you. They're going to fit it in some concept that they're comfortable with. And uh, they're going to feed it back to you because they have a need to feel like they're being helpful. And they're using their knowledge. And so they just fail to see that person in there. And, of course, the person in there cannot come alive, cannot grow, cannot ontologically develop and become present without listening to the heart, without cultivating that relationship. Yeah. And so what do you think? Do you think that people just need to start to, um, you know, have a right and a left foot, have shamanic practitioners and a therapist and just begin to weave that together in their life? 
I see that happening. Uh, I see that happening. I, mean, I should say I see that happening in America. Mm-hmm. In Europe and Africa, it's a different thing. But um, uh, because uh, all the teaching that I do do, I see a lot of people. Most of the, the people that work with me are themselves psychotherapists or they're physicians or psychiatrists, uh, about 60%. Uh, or they're psychology professors, so it's a high percentage. But they have therapists too. And uh, when they're healing uh, from a trauma and they've had a soul recovery, let's say, uh, they uh, have been good at finding therapists who will support their shamanic framework and not flatten it. And I think it's important to do that. If, if you're a consumer of shamanic services, so to speak, you also, and you need a therapist, you need to find one who is friendly with uh, shamanic um, spirituality and, and, and language. Are there like three questions a person could ask before someone, <laughs> when they're shopping for a new therapist, they could ask to sort of parse that out? Oh, I, I haven't thought about it, but one would be uh, what kind of spirituality do you have? Mm. The therapists yeah. themselves. Yes. Yeah. And do you know anything about shamanism or anomalous phenomena? Mm-hmm. That is, uh, anomalous phenomena would be things like psi experience, ESP, uh, visionary experience, uh, kundalini-like symptoms. It could be anything that mm-hmm. falls out of uh, our definition of sanity in Western culture outside the paradigm if that therapist would tend to view that stuff only as archetypes or complexes or only as psychopathology or brain chemistry i would stay away from that kind of therapist Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they're going to try to flatten your experience yeah so one of the things that attracts me to your work mostly because it it supports my tender steps in my own work is, is about really coming out around the value of community. In other words, not just saying we all took this same workshop. So now we're a community, (laughs) you know, or this sort of gathering around a common theme, which is kind of like a bowling league, you know, but it's not really a community. And, um, I wonder if you could speak to that because you're you're obviously engaged, you know, literally all over the world. And so what makes that piece important for you? Well, I saw, again, when I was uh, doing the medical anthropological study with uh, Sudhir Kakar, that uh, shamanism almost always took place in a community context, especially in Southeast Asia, but even in South America. It takes place out in the open. And any of the community can come, and often they do come, uh, and participate in the ceremony, and it's also enriching and healing for them. So I knew in my heart that it's important to have community. But I must tell you, I did very little to make community happen. Here's what happened. is synchro destiny. Um, when uh, I first began doing offering vision quests about 16 years ago, uh, uh, that grew out of a class I was teaching at University of Chicago on shamanism and yoga. And uh, some of those students wanted to go. And so after the Vision Quest, we formed a community at Nub Lake, about six or seven men, really, PhD students. And uh, and I, I went on like that for um, 10 years or so. But about five years ago, some uh, retreat center in the south of France called Centre Trimarty 
it's uh, on the Riviera, uh, invited me. It was actually three years in a row to come teach there. And uh, I was a little scared of it. And I didn't, I don't like airplanes and travel. Uh, but one of my teachers, my Cherokee teachers, he says, what is wrong with you? You know, you have something to share with the world. Why aren't you out there doing it? You're staying at home in your comfort zone and, you know, <laughs> the world needs what you've got. You're giving it for a reason. So uh, I cleaned myself up. I, I saw I have some fear and I got rid of that and I accepted the call. I went there and I taught for three years in a row at Santra Trimurti. But out of that, I had invitations to Switzerland, France. Belgium, eventually South Africa, eventually Peru, Mexico, and so on. Uh, one thing led to another. Uh, people would come, and uh, it was completely without plan. That's my first point. No plan. I'm just responding to the opportunities that are arising. Second point is, wherever I went, we, we did a great workshop. Uh, very experiential. There's, uh, of course, sacred fire ceremony. Uh, sometimes there's sweat lodges. Uh, but the, the big items are uh, shamanic journey, trance dancing, and then sacred breath, which is a kind of shamanic holotropic breath work. And uh, with the lots of sharing, and I teach counseling skills, so there's lots of one-on-one. And the community is just spontaneously formed. And they wanted to meet again. They didn't want to lose what they experienced in that five-day period. So we set up a schedule of me coming around. I, I make rounds every quarter to these different countries, different places and do these workshops, and the community meets. What, what's beautiful is that they they also do retreats on the months that I'm not there, and they take turns leading them and running them, and now they're starting to branch out, which is a beautiful thing to see, uh, as there are leaders now emerging from these communities that are carrying uh, their work to other parts of, uh, of Europe and uh, Africa. But... That's synchro destiny, as uh, Deepak calls it. You know, that's nothing planned. That's simply me following my heart and the universe arranging the opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just following the cues. I have no uh, intention uh, in terms of a plan or telling people how to do it to create these communities. I'm supporting them. I see they need to happen. I talk about them sometimes, how important it is that we have grassroots communities all over the planet so we can really create this global shift and create a more earth-honoring way of living. Mm-hmm. But I- then you also visit. You also go yourself to be present with them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Every other month. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I travel a lot. A mm-hmm. lot. But, uh, and I, I'm not doing this for uh, money or uh, fame. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, I'm 61 years old. Uh, My mother died 10 years ago, and I said to myself, okay, what do I need to do to fulfill my reason for being here? And this is part of it, is simply before I die, I want to do what I can do to leave some good stuff in the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's a kind of a purpose or a, a mission thing. That's my intention, is to live that purpose, to live that mission. And the rest just materializes spontaneously. Mm Mm-hmm. Is there anything um, emerging? Is there anything new or um, uh, developing a, a deeper expression of or something coming, birthing in, in all that you're doing that you're excited about? Yes, there's much really. At Santra Trimurti, for three years I've been work, working with shamans from all over the world, from virtually every culture. 
And uh, that in itself is a rare experience. Uh, there's not been anything quite like it ever. And uh, we're all learning from each other <laughs> and heating things up. In my uh, workshops in uh, uh, south of France, in Paris, in uh, Bruxelles, Belgium, um, the, my assistants who are, are now becoming independent teachers and running their own workshops, they began uh, uh, integrating uh, stuff they learned from Gabriella Roth, you know, the five rhythms, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, with my sacred breath work. Okay. And then we began entering that trance stuff with shamanic journeying. And we found that people that have difficulty shamanic journeying would do it spontaneously, either in trance dancing or in uh, shamanic journeying. But we use the ecstatic music of the trance dancing with it. So now what we have going on is uh, the three practices all become equivalent to each other. We see people having spontaneous death and rebirth processes like you would have in a Groff holotropic session while they're doing sacred dancing or while they're journeying. And people that would never uh, dance their power animal spontaneously begin doing it in these contexts and enter Mm -hmm. a deeper relationship. It's very exciting to see this creative interweaving of these disciplines. So. Yeah, this was a piece for me that really I was very young and I and I came into shamanism from dancing professionally. Uh-huh. And um and it was a and I was well, it, I was very young. <laughs> I didn't understand what was going on. I had no context at all other than a context for dance and I know that I felt um I would say now in reflection I felt constantly claustrophobic in the process because it didn't what we were doing didn't express out into movement and into dance, into art, into song. Um, and, and, um, and I was so shy and didn't know what was going on. I just kind of bottled it all up. (laughs) It just seemed very strange to not have that, that flow between the journeying and the dancing and the, uh, yeah. I must say, Christina, I've seen uh, a number of your videos on YouTube, uh, you teaching, you doing healing work, and I'm a great admirer of your work. It's beautiful. And I, I see resonances. Uh, uh, for example, I saw uh, Soul Recovery you did uh, publicly there, and uh, I felt right at home. I thought, well, that's what I do. There it is right there. Yeah. 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 It, it is. Um, yeah. I've, it's been a real joy for me. Just I've just been kind of sitting here listening to you because I um, – spent so many years just thinking, well, you know, am I just making this up or am I speaking for an energy that exists? And then, you know, you're came to it in your way. And I see that we're, we're talking about an energy that exists that needs to be brought out and, and serving it. Yeah. It's beautiful. And I, um, really appreciate your work. And, and I just looked up and realized, Oh crap, we're out of time. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for sharing um, with us here today, but in particular for really giving your, your heart's work to the world. I really appreciate it. And, um, and I give thanks to your ancestors for dreaming of a better future so that you might be here with us. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real honor. 
So to remind everyone, if you want to go find uh, Mikal's work, it's crowsnestshamanism.com. And I just want to point out, while I've been sitting here looking out the windows and listening, the crows have been everywhere flying around. <laughs> I hope. I'm just so that. So I give thanks to the ancestors for gathering here with us today. I give deep, deep thanks for the earth below and the sky above and for the heart so that you might be here with us. Thank you, everyone. Take care. <laughs>